0: Charismatic Shark Tank investor Kevin O'Leary in Abu Dhabi for an initiative that hopes to attract diverse businesses from the US to the UAE. The fintech world also gathers at ADGM for a dynamic and exciting event. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from The National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. With me is Kelsey Warner, co-host and The Nationals Future Editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, Mustafa. So you spoke to Kevin O'Leary. I'm a big fan of his. Um, He's my favorite shark. Anyone who's watched the the show Shark Tank, um, people pitch their business ideas to a panel of um, brilliant and ruthless investors, including Kevin O'Leary.
1: And so in the name of journalistic objectivity, you said Kelsey You who don't really watch Shark Tank should go do this interview. And so that's what I did. And he really did frame up this trip and his participation in this program as a Web 3.0 play, that we are entering into decentralized finance, decentralized technology more generally, and that he said, you know, quote, this will be a land grab for policymakers to establish stable policy to attract companies and investment. And he sees Abu Dhabi as a really strong player and potential in his words, Switzerland, of this 3.0 DeFi wave that we're in.
0: So Access Abu Dhabi is the program, hoping to attract you know diverse companies from the US here. Uh, Kevin O'Leary uh, very much talking up the, the kind of soft infrastructure available in Abu Dhabi in terms of how businesses can operate and encouraging um, success and innovation. Um, m- more broadly, uh, there's a, a really um, eclectic group of people here at this conference at ADGM today. And we have Patrice Evra, Manchester United uh, footballer, former Manchester United footballer. We have Akon, who is a um, R&B star as well as um, the founder of A-Coin. And he's into renewable energy as well and, and very much um, helping um, entrepreneurs in Africa. We have Christina Milian, who is, uh, I'm told, uh, by our producer Arthur, is a very successful singer and actress. Um, and that's not including all the, the kind of big, business names. We had Mohammed Alibar, Imar chairman as well.
1: As well as the CEO chairman of Stripe. So my sense from this year, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it has more global ambitions. That FinTech Week, it's in its fifth incarnation. It used to be a fairly regional convening. This year feels a bit buzzier, a bit grander in ambition and in scope.
0: And it's a very sort of transient time for the industry as well. It, it's As you say, it's the fifth edition, probably four years ago, three years ago, there might have been a lack of penetration, maybe a lack of awareness of exactly what fintech is um, and what it can mean. Uh, but we've, we've seen how tokenization, following on from cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and NFTs have become buzzwords. And in fact, what I'm seeing is um, people have, have, have dived into this area and perhaps we're trying to work out where some of the parameters are. Lots of, of fighting at the moment over intellectual property rights when it comes to tokenization and NFTs, for example. And people understand that, yes, it's the future for sure. I think that's the message we're hearing. But also we have to shape that future right now.
1: It's a lot of volatility. It's a lot of, it feels like the Wild West and diving head first, I think has been the theme, which is why we've seen so much volatility. But it really, it's about safety. It's about access. And so how do we expand access to financial services? And the idea that technology can can help do that is is very promising, but it needs to be a stable space first. So I think that's really the conversation we're having this week.
0: As a final note, um, before we, we dive into your interview with Kevin O'Leary, I would say that the big banks are here too. I mean, this isn't just, you know, entrepreneurs and innovators and small startups or even unicorns like Stripe, et cetera um but we we have fab we have standard chartered um the the financial institutions the traditional financial institutions are also very serious about this space so kelsey you spoke to kevin o'leary as we said let's listen to that now
1: in teasing your trip here on social media you really framed this as a web 3.0 opportunity which i thought was interesting i want to ask you how does an entrepreneur in the web 3.0 space catch a shark's attention these days. Why is this a web 3.0 story to you Well,
2: you have to start with the premise that um, there's a, a fundamental change occurring in financial services and you know many people tried to ignore centralized decentralized finance cryptocurrencies for quite a while thinking the regulators would just stamp it out. but that's not what's happened. The potential for the productivity of, of blockchain financial services products and services is so compelling, that it's really now on the back of the regulators around the world to decide at what pace they're going to adopt it. It's not going away. It's what pace they're going to adopt it and under what policies they're going to do so. So because I work in that space, I have a lot of investments in financial services, both FinTech, but more traditional, such as indexing for pensions and institutions and ETFs, those markets. And, you know, I've been looking at this now for four years and realized, well, This is going to be a a fundamental change to an industry that I've made my living in for decades, and I have to be part of it. So what turns out to be the biggest predictor of outcomes is policy. And so look at what happened, um, you know, just four years ago, the U.S. regulator was, was serving up wells letters and subpoenas because people were trying to tokenize assets like hotels and things like that and clearly they were sending a signal, and everybody got the joke in financial services. But then we saw regulators in Switzerland and Germany and and England and New Zealand and Australia and Canada start to take a different tone. And indeed, the Canadians were the first to license a real ETF with the underlying being Bitcoin, and billions of dollars came to that within hours. And so other regulators looked at that, including the government here, and said, wait a minute, um, this is real. And so... For investors like me, we're, we're just trying to go meet governments and say, what is policy for centralized, decentralized, and cryptocurrencies? Where are you on it? That's why I came here. Because the, the word on the street, so to speak, is that this government here in Abu Dhabi is very interested in attracting, um, this is all software development. That's what it is. I mean, Bitcoin is just software. I mean, if you invest in Google or you invest in Yahoo, or if you invest in, You know, Microsoft, it's software.
1: But it's borderless. It's, you know, decentralized, as you're saying, by its very definition. And yet it feels like it's in search of borders. It's in search of regulation. It's in
2: search of regulation. So it won't have borders, but it will have regulators. And so in in my meetings, first of all, the thing about this state is you can actually talk to the regulator. There's not many places you can do that. And, and you can do it here, and you can get a candid conversation, one-on-one, and, and get guidance, which is remarkable. You, you, to do that in other jurisdictions, you need lobby firms, you need lawyers, you need months. You can get this done in a day here. And so, this place punches above its weight in terms of giving you guidance on policy. Now, the policies are still being adopted here, so I'm I'm trying to figure out, do I invest here to... Is this the nexus for the Middle East? Is this a Switzerland of the Middle East? Because the Middle East has a bad rap for being unstable. And so when I come here, my phone rings all night long with the other investors back over in North America saying, what are you learning? What's going on? So the, the, and what the, are you telling them? First of all, people's perception about this place are wrong. It's very stable. And I'll give you. I'll give you a, a use case that has nothing to do with finance that gives you an idea of how advanced this place is. You may know of this. Yesterday, as part of this delegation from the U.S., um, this Access Abu Dhabi, which is a really good program because you really can't read the file on this place. You've got to come here because you don't believe the stuff you're reading because you don't know if it's real or not. We went and visited a DNA facility, and I'm an investor in that space, so I know a little bit about it um, 23andMe and, and, and those kinds of, and I also am one of the only, uh, businesses in the world that does cat DNA because there's hundred million cats in North America. So it's a big market. Base is the name of the company. So I'm pretty familiar with the protocols and the equipment. <laughs> sure. and the exp- and there is no lab on earth like the one here. It has the Chinese, the British, and the American protocols in one building. That's never been done. So that means they have the most comprehensive, highest resolution DNA sequencing in the world.
1: I think you're referring to Group 42's genomics program.
2: But nobody knows. Like, I looked at that, and I met the the CEO, and I said, I can't believe this.
1: But in terms of Abu Dhabi's convening power, which is something that you're sort of speaking to now with China, the U.S., U.K., kind of... No, but they brought them all together
2: in one building. They're practically suing each other, and somehow they've made a Switzerland state in one building. I mean, there's litigation going on between those protocols. And yet they're working together in Abu Dhabi. Doesn't that say at all about this place? This is the Switzerland of the Middle East.
1: So when you think about the regulatory environment, if it's going to be, you know, the new banking capital of, of the region, and if not, I think it has kind of global aspirations, What are what is on your wish list to see from regulators? What are you asking for?
2: Three things. Policy, policy, and stable policy. Individuals don't create jobs. Policy creates jobs it gives you confidence to invest. If I really, you know, think think about my situation. I'm just one investor, okay? I'm a fiduciary. I have to convince myself first that this risk is worth taking because I don't want to be wrong. And in that context, I, I move very slowly. I really, really need to get there. And I've been coming here for years and not really believing you know, what everybody was saying, because the region is so unstable. But my confidence level is way up now.
1: What changed for you?
2: Actually meeting government multiple times. It's easy to go to some conference and shake hands once, but to actually get, in the three days I've been here, I've had multiple meetings with the same regulators, their staff, His Excellency. I mean- you don't get access like that, and so the, the the fact that they're willing to commit that time tells me that they're that they want to get more people in, in where I'm at.
1: It speaks to some responsive, agile government. I heard you recently be somewhat critical of the Biden infrastructure bill. as
2: oh, I'm beyond critical.
1: But is it going to be jobs, or is it going to be a you know decelerator of U.S. competitiveness? And I want to ask you about you had mentioned jobs earlier. What sort of jobs can be created by an agile government?
2: It's no longer about whether, uh, in in the context of Abu Dhabi, moving jobs from one jurisdiction to another. The the opportunity here is, do you make it the nexus for your business build-out in this region? Because there's one irrefutable fact, particularly financial services. The growth in these markets around here is geometrically larger than North American growth. And so for financial services which are losing their borders, as you said earlier, and you're correct, all of us are looking to figure out how do we tap these new markets and from where do we tap them? And so if you tell me as a regulator that you'll allow me to set up a Moroccan account, an Iraqi account, an Egyptian account here um, that I can service, and, and I can do it on a compliant basis and not go offside. And you tell me which geographies I can do it in and you show me the policy. Well, yes, I'm interested. And so that's the kind of question that investors like I have, because the opportunity for this place is it becomes, remember they used to call Beirut the Paris of the Middle East. I'm a Lebanese, I'm half Lebanese. Well, this place can be Switzerland of the Middle East. It can be. And Swiss, the Swiss have designed the most incredible financial services you know, in the world and the most stable policy and and the most stable government. And I know that because my dad is Swiss and, you know, I've been living there for 49 years, you know, back and forth. So I understand that definition and what it means. And remarkably about this place, and I didn't even know this, my father is my stepfather and he worked with the ILO. I told him I was coming here and he told me, I lived there 30 years ago with your mother. I said, what, in Abu Dhabi? He said, yeah, I worked on the water system. The ILO were oh, wow. brought in to build the infrastructure, and he said, "Where you are today?" Because I had my did a FaceTime out of the hotel. He said, "That was nothing. There was nothing there." And you know, people claim it's the fiftieth anniversary. The truth is about this place. This all happened in twenty-five years. He was here thirty years ago. There was nothing here. There was no water yet in many places. And look at it now. Policy. That's what happened.
1: You got to lay the pipes. So yeah, I want to ask you about access Abu Dhabi and the program to attract. American companies to establish in Abu Dhabi, what does success, you're a spokesperson for that. I think it can be easy to be maybe critical of maybe some hype around, around this program. And what does actual concrete success look like from this program as an Abu Dhabi resident? What should I be looking for from Access Abu Dhabi?
2: Well, Sarah and her team convinced me last year that she could get me access to the government. That's what I wanted. I mean, it's been great to socialize with everybody. We've had a wonderful time, but I'm here to meet the government. I mean, that's 99.9% of what I I need and I want, and she delivered it for all of us. And so she set those meetings up. We did it on a formal and informal basis, and then I was able to even on specific areas that I wanted more clarity on to have another meeting, and then in some cases, a third meeting. So I want to use my time really, really productively here. And, and I've been able to, so she called it Access Abu Dhabi and that's exactly what she delivered. And so my recommendation is to do it again and again and again and again, because we're like bees with pollen on our, on our
1: legs. Now
2: we're going back and saying there's honey over there and we got to figure it out.
1: So Sarah Amaliwu, who's the founder of Access Abu Dhabi, and it's a tie up between Maven and Abu Dhabi investment office. And I, Want to ask you last question. It is specifically targeting women and minority founded businesses. And I think you probably could have been more general and just gone after American startups, 3.0 space, that sort of flavor. And yet you've said that you're going to make a commitment to attracting women and minority founders. Why is that?
2: For me, it's more practical. I look at my portfolio in the last 16 years in venture, in private investments, because we run a pretty big book. Pre-pandemic, we were over 50 companies. Post-pandemic, we're 34. So most of them survived and are thriving. The majority of our returns during that long extended period have come from companies run by women. So we're biased now. So when we look at, at companies, remember these are private companies, and a lot of them in consumer goods and services, a lot of FinTech as well. In in private investments, it's return of capital that matters because you're deploying capital, you're betting on a team, and until you get your capital return, there is no return on capital. You need return of capital. And so if you look at the outcomes of the companies run by women, they have, well, 70% of our returns have come from them. So we're now very biased. When we deploy new capital, we're looking for, and you know what I think it is? It's risk mitigation. If you, if we looked at, we tried to study uh, quarterly outcomes for seven years in our own portfolio to figure out what are they doing? Cause they don't know each other and these are different sectors and we have everything from wireless charging to, you know, uh, environmentally friendly sexicide. We have commercial kitchens. We service airlines. I mean, we, we got everything and we, we do gym equipment and uh, we do cat DNA. We do, we do all of it. And, and, and these outcomes are all, uh, for example, wicked good cupcakes just bought a, was acquired by uh, Hickory farms last week. That's one of my companies run by a mother-daughter team, which started off in their kitchen and became the number one gifting item in America, FedEx, you know, cupcakes. And so how did that happen? And it, what it turns out is, if you look at the companies run by my men, and I'm not against those either, I mean, I have those as well, but they send, they tend to set targets that are, are only achieved about 60% of the time, which means they put growth goals like 50% on an annualized basis or whatever they're doing. And you look at the at, at the targets met by uh, companies, by women.
1: Which is to say unrealistic goals.
2: Testosterone targets, I call them. And and you look at the women's targets are significantly less. They may be only 15% growth they're targeting, but they hit those goals 95% of the time. And where it manifests itself in outcomes is they have very sticky teams. Nobody wants to, to, to leave something that's constantly hitting its targets. And so they have no turnover in, in, in key areas like accounting, compliance, logistics, where in companies with, you know, only half a billion in sales or something, which, you know, these companies are 50, half they they're kind of small. You don't want disruption. So my theory is that because they're, they're, they're setting targets that are achievable, they, the culture's different and the outcomes of, re, of the capital return is faster. So the minute you get your capital returned, you're starting to get a return, an internal rate of return. So that is why it's a smart idea from a government policy perspective in this place to have over half the country run by women. Why not? I'm not trying to start gender warfare. It has nothing to do with it. It's returns.
1: Following the data. I'm a
2: fiduciary. I try to get returns. Like that's, I don't, I've often said this maybe whimsically. I'd give money to a goat if I could get a return. I just give money to where I can get a return and it happens to be better for women.
1: And you're expecting to see a return from Abu Dhabi. Are you expecting to invest in Abu Dhabi course, or you but, invest But, on but this I'm,
2: I'm looking to understand policy. When you get comfortable with policy and it's going to be stable and you understand the regulator in financial services, then you can turn the spigot on and you don't do it until you do. We, we look at a lot of jurisdictions because we know we have to start in this world where there's no borders on financial services. We have to start establishing our nexuses in different places. There's very few Switzerland's in the world.
1: When do you think Abu Dhabi can establish itself as a Switzerland?
2: I think it's happening right now. I I think the the initiatives to focus, and you heard uh, the chairman at the beginning talking about this focus of this meeting is financial services. Well, that's the messaging you need to have. The reason, if you look at the velocity of capital, global capital, at the sovereign pension level, state level, provincial level in Canada, 60% 60% of the velocity is towards financial services right now, trying to figure out the new world. That's how you should look at it. You should say, where is, the, where is the velocity? And it's in financial services. So for the government here to make note of that, I'm not saying education isn't important. I'm not saying energy isn't important. But for the next three years, this is going to be a land grab for governments that can stabilize policy. And my sense here is they get it. And the fact that I can come here and put pollen on my bee legs and go back <laughs> and say, I think we should, you know, you know how bees wag their tail and say, go that direction. Well, that's what I'm going to be doing when I leave here. That's how they work.
1: Well, Kevin O'Leary, trying to understand the new world order. Good luck to us all in that endeavor. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you. That was Kelsey speaking to Kevin O'Leary, the Shark Tank investor. Kelsey. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. All that remains to thank Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, our production team. And please do join us again next time.